Good evening, saints. Praise the Lord. It's nice to see you all on a Sunday night. For most churches, Sunday night services have gone the way of high-button shoes. Has anybody, has anybody seen my sermon? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> my name is Phil Del Rey. I believed in Jesus when I was 15 years old. I believed in Jesus so strongly that I believed I would have died for Jesus rather than renounce my faith. When I was nine years old, I was a perfectly normal nine-year-old boy. And one night on a Sunday night, in less than nine minutes, I saw the Beatles play on the, on the Ed Sullivan Show, and in less than nine minutes I had completely changed. I wanted to be like them. <laughs> I take no pleasure in telling you some of the things that I'm going to tell you. I wasn't planning on doing this tonight, but I, I have a feeling maybe the, this is what the Lord wants. And I'm going to ask the Lord to protect all of our young people because I didn't come here to glorify sin. I came here to glorify Jesus Christ. Amen. Satan tried to kill me many times through sin, but God spared my life and brought me to this moment for a purpose. I'm going to trust that God is going to use this in some lives here. Because I hate to say these things in front of young people. But God can use it. I started smoking marijuana when I was about 12 years old. And I bought my first pound of marijuana when I was about 14 or 15 years old. And I sold it, I paid $50 for it, and I sold it for $600 in small, small amounts. I continued smoking marijuana every day until the time I was 19 years old. I was a major marijuana connection in the Chicagoland area. By the time I was 27, I was selling marijuana by the bale. And... An old friend that I used to sort of hang out with, a young lady, when I was 17 years old, moved away from the Displains area and moved to Miami, Florida. She came back 10 years later when I was 27 years old and looked me up. And uh, we started hanging around together. And I used her apartment a few days later to sell somebody a bale of marijuana for $35,000. A couple of days later, she said that her dad wanted to meet me. So we flew down to South Dade County, Florida, and her father pulled out a kilo of pure Colombian cocaine and emptied it out in a bowl on the table and asked me if I could do anything with it. 
I took it back to the Chicagoland area and I showed it to some friends. I knew people that sold cocaine because I sold marijuana to them. This guy had much had a much higher quality product for a much lower price than anybody had around here. He was associated with some organized crime people. So Overnight, I became an instant success, and I started selling cocaine. And uh, I went back to Miami uh, a third time, and he said, why, why don't we stop messing around? Why don't you just take this? And he brings a, a huge suitcase out of the closet, and I open it up, and there's 18 kilos of pure Colombian cocaine in unsealed packages directly from South America. I looked at it, I counted them, I said, there's 18 of them there at $50,000 a kilo. That's $900,000. I said, boy, if you get caught with that, that's really a problem. The street value of that suitcase was probably $100 million. So I started bringing this cocaine back to the Chicagoland area. I overdosed three times real bad. I should have died each time. I'm going to spare you the details. Normally I, I share these details when I share my testimony in prisons or in jails, but here it would be inappropriate with these young people here. And I don't even like talking about this anyway, but God's going to use this. I should have died each time. It's a miracle that I survived. The third time I overdosed on cocaine, it was so bad. And I'm not trying to be sensational, but I believe Satan put his hand around my throat and began to pull me down into hell. And God said, no, this one belongs to me. And I sat back up and my friend drove me home. In fact, he called 911 and they put him on hold and he was sure he had a dead man in his living room. The details are gruesome. It was a brutal scene. I overdosed three times, and three times, three separate homes that I maintained, uh, three separate houses were burglarized while I was gone. Somebody was looking for my drugs and my money, and they missed it all three times. After my third overdose, when my friend called me and told me what happened to me, I had no idea what had happened, and he described it to me, and I hung up the phone. I started thinking about my life objectively. I didn't like what I saw. This is not what I wanted. I never intended this. <laughs> never intended this to happen. I believed in Jesus when I was 15 years old. Phase one, intellectual ascent. I believed in Jesus. Everybody believes in Jesus. Even the demons believe in Jesus. But intellectual assent is not heart faith. I said I believed in Jesus so strongly I believed I would have died for him. My problem was I wasn't living for him. So I started thinking about my life objectively and I didn't like what I saw at all. And I knew I was either going to overdose again and I would not survive Whoever this maniac was that was burglarizing my home wasn't going to miss it a fourth time. 
and I just might get my head blown off for these drugs. And I started thinking about this God that I believed in. And I looked up to the ceiling and I said, I'll never forget it as long as I live. I said, Father, I know what I'm doing is wrong. But I can't stop it. Three days later, November 10th, 1981, at 2 a.m. in the morning, there was a knock on my door in a condominium in Mount Prospect as loud and as hard as you can knock on a door. And I was awake and I knew something was very wrong because you didn't come to my house without an appointment. So I walked to the door and I looked out the peephole and I didn't see anything and they knocked on it again as hard as you can knock on a door without knocking it over. And I said, who is it? They said, it's the police, open the door, we have a warrant for your arrest. Whew, Whew. that's a heavy thing to hear. I opened the door and to my surprise, it was God. And he looked exactly like a dozen special agents from the Department of Law Enforcement, the Metropolitan Enforcement Group, and the Mount Prospect Police. They informed me that I was under arrest for conspiracy to deliver a non-narcotic controlled substance to wit cocaine. I was charged with a Class X felony in Cook County, which carries a 6- to 30-year sentence. I was charged in two counties in Wisconsin for conspiracy to deliver, and at the time of my arrest, my case represented the largest cocaine seizure in the history of the state of Wisconsin. Phase two, jailhouse religion. I went from intellectual assent to jailhouse religion. See, I needed somebody bigger and badder than the state of Illinois because the state of Illinois had declared war on me and I needed somebody more powerful than the state to get me out of it. I made the same mistake the ancient Jews made. I was looking for a political deliverer rather than a spiritual deliverer. I didn't want God. I just wanted God to do me a favor. I wanted God to get me out of this legal case that I had. So now I get spiritual and I start attending services at a church on Tuesday, at a Tuesday night prayer meeting. And I'm calling out to God to get me out of this. My precious mother would send me home with a $20 bill for food. They got all the drugs and all the money, thank God. My dear mother would send me home with a $20 bill for food and gas, but I wouldn't get food and gas. I would go to the liquor store and buy a half gallon of rum, one of those big bottles with a handle on it, a half gallon of rum, two six-packs of Coke, and a pack of cigarettes, and I'd go home and listen to George Benson's This Masquerade, the instrumental version, about 25 times before I could drink that half gallon of rum about three-quarters down. About 2 o'clock in the morning, you could find me laying on the kitchen floor, kicking and screaming, drunk out of my mind, screaming at God, why won't you get me out of this? As if they were the bad guys. 
It took three years to decide the case. I was out on bond for three years, and it took three years. You go back and forth to court every month, and you get a continuance every month for whatever reason. And for three years, I was a complete raving lunatic. I got arrested for driving under the influence about a dozen times in that three-year period. It is a miracle that no one was ever killed by that automobile that I was driving. I was so bad, there were, there were the, the next days, there were times when I was completely blacked out. I couldn't even remember where I was. I almost drank myself to death. I almost had a nervous breakdown twice because I knew I was guilty, the judge knew I was guilty, and God knew I was guilty. I knew I was going to prison. Finally, the judge did me a favor and sentenced me to six years in the Illinois State Penitentiary. I served two years, eight months, three weeks, and five days. And for two years, eight months, three weeks, and five days, I read the Word of God and I prayed. About a year and a half into my prison sentence, nothing was happening. See, I would just go to the Bible and just open it up and start reading anywhere. You wouldn't do that with any other book. It's literature. It has context. Something that happened here is significant because something else happened here. People do that with the Bible and wonder why they can't understand it. So one day I realized I need to read this thing from cover to cover. And if nothing else happens when I graduate from this institution of higher learning, I'll at least be able to say I read the Bible from cover to cover. So I started reading in Genesis 1, bound and determined to read this book all the way through, and I did. And I didn't get but to the fifth book, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 29, before God spoke to me. Deuteronomy 4.29 says, You shall seek me, and you shall find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Brothers and sisters, those words jumped off the pages into my eyeballs, through my nervous system, up to my brain, and down into my heart. God spoke to me. He was saying, he is saying, I'm not an obscure power, I'm not an impersonal force, I'm a person and you can know me like you know your mother. I took him up on his offer and I began to seek him with all of my heart. I got to Proverbs chapter 2 and he said, My son, if you will receive my sayings, if you will incline your ear to wisdom, if you'll lift your voice for understanding, if you will cry out for discernment, if you'll search for her, that is the wisdom of God, if you will search for her as you search for hidden treasure, you'll discover the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. I got to Matthew, and he said, Ask, and you shall receive. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and the door shall be opened unto you. For everyone who asks receives, and him who seeks finds, and all who knock, the door shall be opened. I got to the book of James, and he says, Draw near to me, and I will draw nigh unto thee. 
In other words, for every step you take towards me, I'll take one towards you. I was understanding these verses. The same theme kept recurring to me. Every time I'd run across one of these, it, I'd catch it and see it, and God would speak to me. I got all the way to the book of Revelation, chapter 3, and now, at the end of the book, he turns the tables, and he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. We just sang that. Wow. Now he's pursuing me. Now he's knocking on the door of my heart saying, open the door and I'll come in. And we'll sit down and we'll eat together. The creator of the universe is inviting me to sit down with him and eat. One night, I was on my knees with my face in my hands in an 8 by 10 steel and cement cell. And I was crying out to God, literally, like the proverb said. And I had my face buried in my hands. And I was bobbing up and down just slightly as I was crying out to God. And I was saying, Father, if you're really there, and if you really love me, and if I'm really on the right track by reading this book and by praying, you've got to speak to me. I've got to hear it from you. I can't take any man's word for it. And I saw some of the preachers that were on television, and I didn't like some of those guys at all. I knew some of those guys weren't right. And I said, Lord, I've got to hear it from you. Well, as I was, as I was doing this, as I was praying, I, I didn't, if you've ever seen the Jews in front of the wailing wall, when they pray, they do this. The reason they do that is because it says in Psalms, I praise God with all my bones. That's what I was doing. I didn't know that's what I was doing, but that's what I was doing. I was crying out to God. I was praising God with every fiber of my being. And that night, it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 16, it says, His spirit will bear witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. That night, the Holy Spirit came. <laughs> that night, the Holy Spirit came down out of heaven and took up residence inside my chest. I became, if, if I could use the phrase, I became impregnated with the Spirit of God. <laughs> and I've never been the same since. That was in 1985. About two weeks before I was due to leave the penitentiary, I read the verses where Jesus said, If you're ashamed of me before men, I'll be ashamed of you before my Father in heaven. And when I read that verse, I was so convicted. I was so compelled by that verse. See, I was afraid of what people would think of me. I was afraid, 
of what my friends would say if I became a Jesus freak, if I became a religious fanatic. Okay, that's what the world wants to put on you. And I was more afraid of what people would think than what God would think. It's called the fear of man in Proverbs 29:25. The fear of man is a snare. But he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted, it says. Now, I didn't know the Proverbs 29 verse at the time, but I said to the Lord, I said, Father, if you'll take that fear of man away from me, I'll never miss an opportunity to speak for you. Whenever I feel your elbow in the ribs, I'll say whatever you want me to say to whomever you want me to say it. I didn't know at the time it also said in 1 John that if you ask anything according to my will, I will hear from heaven and you will have the petitions you ask. Well, as you can see, I'm no longer ashamed of the gospel. <laughs> because it's the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and also to every other race of man. <sighs> the good pastor is going to come and assist me. Compassionate, faithful. Thank you, pastor. Well, I told the Lord that I'd, I'd never miss an opportunity to speak for him. And uh, see, when you pray something according to his will, he hears from heaven. And by God's grace and for his glory, I have, uh, even though I'm not paper trained yet, like a puppy, I'm not paper trained I have been privileged to speak in pastor's conferences and uh, in seminaries and in Bible colleges. I've taught at Trinity twice. I've addressed the entire student body of, at Moody. I've taught at pastor's conferences across the country and around the world, preach, preaching in churches and jails and in prisons all across the country. And believe me, don't misunderstand why I'm telling you this. I want you to, the reason I'm telling you this is because it says God chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. That makes me imminently qualified to preach. <laughs> I, I've taught at Trinity and Moody, as I said, and they think I have a PhD in theology. Not only do I not have a PhD in theology, I don't even have a fishing license. That's when I should have said, I'm just not paper trained yet. <laughs> but I believe in continuing education. I am continuing. When you stop learning, you stop teaching. I realize now that ours is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. He didn't want me to die for him necessarily. He wanted me to live for him. He's not looking for dead sacrifices anymore. That's an Old Testament thing. Now he's looking for living sacrifices. My worst day as a Christian 
is so far better than my best day as a cocaine cowboy, it cannot be measured. I wouldn't trade my walk with Jesus Christ or my ministry for all the money in this world. I shared my testimony at a church one time and there was a, a line of people waiting to talk to me afterwards and there was a gal wait, specifically purposely waiting to be last. A young gal, about my age, this was some time ago, and she had her chance and before she came up to me we were separated by about 10 feet or so and she looked both ways and sort of looked down and rather sheepishly approached me and sort of said, in a, in a low tone, she said, Don't you miss it? And I looked both ways, and I looked down, and I stepped forward, and I said, Not any more than I would return to eat my own vomit. And she stepped back a little bit, and I stepped forward a little bit more. And I said, Ma'am, I've already got it all. I won't trade it for a little bit. I know who I am in Christ. I know for a fact who I am, where I came from, why I'm here, and where I'm going. And it's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus all the way. If somebody put a gun to my head and said, renounce your faith in Jesus Christ or I'm going to blow your brains out, I'd have to say, you mean you're threatening me with heaven? Ha! <laughs> <laughs> I'd have to say, give me that gun, you fool, and let me tell you about Jesus. In 1994, a group of men came to me and said, what would it take to get you into full-time ministry? And I said, well, I'm already doing ministry. And they said, yeah, well, we'd like you to do it full time. What would it take to get you involved in full-time ministry? I said, you mean financially? And they said, yeah. I said, you mean you want to pay me to eat candy? Is that what you're telling me? Since 1994, God has opened the door for us in, in uh, I've been to Russia, I've been to the Ukraine, uh, we've been to Africa. I, I was privileged to teach and preach at the Beyond Amsterdam 2000 conference in Zambia, Africa, sponsored by Billy Graham. We had over 2,000 pastors there, and I would travel across the world. I've flown to the Ukraine to teach 15 Bible college students how to do evangelism. And don't think I'm bragging for a minute. The only thing good about me is Jesus, the hope of glory. Now, there's probably some things I've forgotten, and there's some things I didn't say purposely, but I want to tell you, young people, that there's a God in heaven and there's a devil in hell. And Jesus wants to give you life and Satan wants to kill you. This drug thing starts with the first cigarette. Starts with the first cigarette. Don't ever, ever, ever smoke a cigarette. Do you know that only 25% of people who have smoked more than two cigarettes have ever successfully stopped? It is one of the most highly addictive substances on the planet. In fact, when I got saved in 1985, I was a cigarette smoker. I had been smoking for 20 years. 
when I got out of the penitentiary in 1987, I was still smoking cigarettes. And I was so ashamed of it. I used to go out for hours at night. I would walk literally for hours and I would pray, asking God to deliver me from this thing. And I would end up behind a church behind, next to my parents' house and I would literally lay flat out, spread eagle, face down on the ground. And I would humble myself before the Lord <laughs> and I would beg him to deliver me. And I couldn't understand why I wasn't getting deliverance. And then one day I, let, I met a gal named Sue. <laughs> one day I met a lady named Susan, and I knew Susan wasn't going to even consider a cigarette smoker, so goodbye cigarettes, hello Susan. <laughs> Never smoked another one of those filthy things again. In fact, a few nights ago, coming out of Division 10 of the Cook County Jail, a young lady walked up to me and said, Excuse me, sir, can I buy a cigarette from you? I said, Young lady, you wouldn't catch me smoking unless I was on fire. <laughs> Jesus wants to give you life, and Satan wants to kill you. Cocaine, heroin, marijuana, all that stuff is right from the pit of hell. Right from the pit of hell. You're looking at a man who's clothed with a robe of joy and anointed with the oil of gladness because of Jesus. It's not my testimony. It's God's testimony. It's the testimony of the power of God to give sight to the blind, to heal the lame and cleanse the lepers and raise the dead. I was dead in trespasses and sins, and now I'm alive in Christ. And the same God who delivered me is the same God who can deliver you. This witness of the Spirit... This uh, Romans 8.16 passage. When John Wesley learned of the witness of the Spirit, he didn't, he didn't have it. And it sent him on a quest. And he didn't stop seeking God until he had that witness of the Spirit. I want to encourage you to seek the Lord with all of your hearts. I believe the time is near I believe the hour is late. I believe the night is almost over when no man can work. The church needs to have a sense of urgency about where we are at in time and what's at stake here. You know what, saints? You've heard it said many times, when I stand before the Lord, I want to hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Well, that's true. I want to hear those words too. But you know what? There's something I want to be able to say to the Lord. I want to be able to say to the Lord, I have finished the work you gave me to do. I don't want to be a slackered, a pew warmer, or a layabout. This is the most incredible opportunity there's only one thing that goes on in a church that won't happen in heaven, and that's evangelism. Worship, fellowship, it's all going to be there, but won't be any time for evangelism once the clock stops, once the bell rings, 
It's too late. And I want to encourage you, saints, to not be one of the 95% who have never shared the gospel with another person. If, if, when a gal gets an engagement ring, do you think she, 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 she walks around with her hands in her pockets so nobody can see it? Oh, no. No, no. Everywhere she goes, she's going, hey, look at me. I got me a man. I'm getting married. Look at that ring. Isn't that right? Homosexuals are coming out of the closet de declaring the whatever they declare, their, their perversion to the world, and they're proud of it. How much more should the, should the church come out of the closet now that we're needed most and, and act upon what we say we believe? Amen? Amen. That was the introduction to my sermon. <laughs> I would like to preach that sermon, but God willing, uh, I may get invited back sometime and we can talk about what it means to believe in Jesus. You know what, I can, how much time do we have, Pastor? We're normally done at 7, but uh, we have refreshments afterwards. Okay, well, I have four minutes. Preach. No, you have more than that. Preach. No, I'm going to give you my, I'm going to give you my, uh, what does it mean to believe in Jesus sermon in four minutes? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? The word believe in the Greek is a verb. What's a verb? An action word. The word believe is found in the Gospel of John more than any other book 96 times, and it's used as an action word. It's a verb in the Greek. It literally means, if you go to the, if you go to the Greek lexicon, it means to believe in and to trust in and to have faith in Jesus. Double checking for accuracy, I turned to the Zondervan Biblical Encyclopedia and I looked up the word believe and it said, see faith. To believe in Jesus means to have faith in Jesus. Now the question I'm answering is, what does the Bible believe? What does saving faith look like? What does it mean to believe in Jesus to the point where you're saved? What must I do to be saved, sir, said the jailer. And Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. What does it say in Romans chapter 10? If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Our eternal destiny is hanging in the balance on understanding what this little tiny word pistil means, believe. To believe in Jesus means to have faith in Jesus. To have faith in Jesus means to be faithful. If your faith is genuine, let me rephrase that. If your faith is genuine, it will result in a life of faithfulness to Jesus. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, plus nothing. Our good works are the result of our salvation, never the cause of it. If your faith is genuine, it will result in a life of faithfulness. Who are the epistles written to? To the faithful in Christ Jesus. So what does it mean to be faithful? To be faithful means to be obedient. Our faithfulness to him is the key that unlocks the treasures of all the blessings that he has for his people. He said, if you love me, you will obey me. Amen. 
But it's not the obedience of a slave, as you see. It doesn't carry the negative connotations of the word slave when you see a movie like Roots. No, it's not that kind of slavery at all. It's the, it, it's the obedience of a loving child to a loving father. A child wants to obey a father who loves him, and we love him because he first loved us. It wasn't the nails that held Christ to the cross. It was his love for you and for me. And that love drives us. Jesus never forced anybody to do anything. Our relationship, our, our, our relationship is a love relationship strictly, purely based on love. And when you love someone, I love my wife. To be unfaithful to my wife is not an option. It's unthinkable. To be unfaithful to Christ is not an option. It's unthinkable. Based on the demonstration of his love for us by laying down his life for his friends, there is no greater love. I love Jesus Christ. I love you, Jesus I tell them that all the time. And so do you if you love Jesus. I, I can remember times in <laughs> I can remember times when I was in jail and, and I'd be reading my Bible and I, there were just times that it was so exciting to read this book. There were times I'd just have to close it and hug it, hold it to my chest and say, Oh, I love you, Jesus. So what does obedience look like? How about Abraham willing to slay his son? out of pure obedience to God. How about Joseph saying, how could I do this great evil and sin against God? Now, uh, it's seven o'clock, so I'm going to close with this illustration. You all know the story of David and Goliath. It's a great story. The Philistines are on, uh, on a mountaintop, a hilltop, the Israelites are on another hilltop with a valley separating them. And the deal is that if they can kill Goliath, then the Philistines will serve the Israelites. But if the Israelites, if Goliath wins, then the Israelites will have to serve the Philistines. Nice way of doing war. Not a bad idea. Goliath comes out. He's somewhere between 9 and 12 feet tall. We don't know exactly, but he's a big boy. And he comes out and he begins to taunt the armies of the living God. And it goes on for 40 days and evenings. He comes out twice a day, and there are the Israelites hiding behind the rocks, and their knees are shaking, and they're chewing on their fingernails, and they're hiding behind the rocks because nobody wants to fight Goliath. And Saul is promising rewards, and nobody wants to do it, and they're all probably thinking in their hearts, why don't you go fight him, Saul? You're head taller than everybody else here. It goes on for over a month. Unimaginable. David, sent by his father to bring some provisions to his brothers, little David, the youngest of seven brothers, comes on the scene just as Goliath comes out and mocks the God of the Israelites. And David says, did you hear what he just said? Are you going to let him get away with that? Did you just hear what he said? He's mocking God. And the big brother said, Shush, you punk. You don't know nothing. Just be quiet. Leave this to the men. 
And Goliath does it again. And David said, did you hear that? How can you let him talk like that? They bring him to Saul. And David says, I can kill him. It's no problem at all. I've killed lions. I've killed bears. Just let me, let me have them. I'll take care of it for you. And Saul says, what? And little David comes up to Goliath. And Goliath laughs, mocks, taunts this little kid. And says, you come to me with sticks? What, am I a dog that you come to me with a stick? He insults him. Promises him what he's going to do with his dead body. And David said, you come to me with a sword and a spear. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. I will feed your carcass to the birds this very day. And he runs towards Goliath. He <laughs> runs towards him. Throws the stone. Hits him in the forehead. Goliath falls over dead. He takes Goliath's sword, cuts off his head, picks it up and shows it to his Israelite brothers. Praise the Lord, he says! The Israelites are now supercharged. Between the Spirit of God, the adrenaline, the whole thing, they let out a shout. They start screaming, jumping over the rocks, chasing the Philistines. Nobody could have whipped those boys at that moment in time. They were invincible. And the Philistines knew it, and they ran. What was the difference between the Israelites and little David? Did the Israelites believe in God? Yes, of course they did. The difference between the Israelites and David is the Israelites believed in God and David believed God. David knew that God promised Abraham, whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. Your enemies will be my enemies. David was acutely aware of the Abrahamic covenant that was made to Abraham and to his descendants, of which David was one. David knew perfectly well that the battle was not between the Israelites and the Philistine or between him and Goliath, but between Goliath and God. The battle belongs to the Lord. Amen. Do you believe in God or do you believe God? There's a big difference. I want to believe God. Let's pray.